Hello, and welcome to the Scuttlebutt Podcast, the show for current and former service members looking to think deep and act big. I'm your host, Brock Briggs, and today I'm speaking with Justin Michael A. Justin is a former submariner in the world's finest Navy. I'm a little bit partial, and he is as well. He was a speechwriter for several notable figures, including General Petraeus, General Mattis, and Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. You'll hear what he learned about leadership from each of them. I don't think that I've ever spoken with someone who has thought more about the creative process than Justin. He's got a prolific Twitter feed and is extremely adept at summarizing information from some of the world's smartest people. You're going to learn a lesson in nuclear fission and how it applies to our creative process in today's conversation. You'll also hear Justin's inspiring words on why it's essential to put your words out into the world and how to use those as a lighthouse to draw like-minded people to you. We get into several other subtopics, what he regrets about his time in the military, working at Palantir, heuristics on habit forming, so much good stuff. You're really going to enjoy this. The last thing before we start, I need a favor. I've set a big, hairy, audacious goal, as some would call it, of hitting 100,000 downloads this year. Given we're a long stride from that still, I've put my foot down on curating the most insightful, action-oriented content for you as I can. If you're listening to this, I would really appreciate you sharing it on social media. Whatever you use, doesn't have to be anything crazy, a screenshot, something you learned, a quote, anything interesting and share that. Post and tag me in it. Those shares go a long way in helping us reach that goal. Please enjoy this conversation with Justin Michael A. One of the things that I was going to ask to get started with you was how's your rhythm, but that might be a little bit overplayed, uh, just given that that's come up in a couple of your interviews. I'll maybe start by asking if you're aware of the fact you have a 4.3 out of 5 stars on Rate My Professor from your time at the Naval Academy. uh, I'm embarrassed by that. Uh, It's hilarious. Um, And in fact, there's one comment on it that says something like this is the worst instructor I've ever had he just talks about he just tells stories but there's other glowing reviews as well so um I really enjoyed that time uh that's a funny first question um and uh I suppose I suppose things live forever on the internet 4.3 out of 5 is pretty good like I don't think that that's gonna push anybody away from uh from taking that class yeah I I have a few hot tamales (laughs) (laughs) that's a nice way to put it yeah I find it funny when people like they say you shouldn't take this class but it's really easy and it's funny that often that doesn't correlate to necessarily what is makes a good or a bad class one thing that I really uh, was proud of in that experience is I intensely edited every paper to the point of insanity so I had a lot of writing assignments and would hand edit and like track change the paper for the student. So try to teach them like how to write a more compelling essay. And it took me forever. Most teachers just like assign a grade to a paper. And I like went kind of nuts on the editing of these student papers to try to teach them sort of the lesson about professional communication. Um, So at least I did that for them. 
You, you definitely did. Did you find that that was successful to them? Like, was that valuable to maybe even a few people? You know, it's hard to know what sticks with people. Um, it's, it's funny because, you know, all of us have these uh, experiences where somebody says an offhand remark and then it sticks with you for the next 20 years. And that person who said that remark would never remember that episode. Um, so my hope is that there's a few people out there who are inspired to get creative and to put their thoughts in writing, which of course is the th only thing that helps you order your thinking. Mm -hmm. It's the classic, uh, it's the classic line. You don't, uh, write to express what you think you write to discover what you think. I've found that to be absolutely true. And I think that more people need to have that same realization because I don't think that even knowing that statement to be true, it really doesn't hit you until you actually see it play out, I think, in your own life. It's so true. I have a feeling like most people have never really tried to write. Uh, they do it for school. And then once school ends, they don't keep writing, which is like a very odd thing. Um, so they, it's it's like I, I have a, a second theory, which is related. Like most people have never been in great physical condition, like great shape. If you're like an excellent physical condition, then running actually feels effortless. And most people have never felt that in their lives. And it's sort of the same metaphor for writing. Like it's super hard. I, re I read one of your Substack posts and you're like, wow, I've just realized how hard this is to do every week, to like write a newsletter and publish it every week. Um, and so it's kind of like, I would say it's like almost equivalent to like a, uh, a physical fitness or a condition, like the, the writing clearly quickly and well is like a skill in the same way, like being in shape is, uh, you know, a, a condition, a state that you're in. I think that there's also some interesting parallels too that come about after so much repetition, it becomes something that you almost can't live without. I know that you were a runner when you're at the Naval Academy, so I know that this will resonate with you, but there comes a point in your fitness. I, I certainly am not there with writing yet, but I'm, I'm getting there and working to see that. But there comes a point when you start to eliminate things that get in the way of your workout or like, oh, if I have this one drink at dinner, my, I'm not going to run as fast. I'm going to be 20 second pace slower the next day or whatever that even just a slight tinge of something not being right. And, and then take that to writing. It's like, oh, well, this will, my process is so important. Like I need to adhere to this and you get yeah, yeah. naturally self-select into the best way to optimize for that one behavior. Yeah, I think the word for that um, is systematic. So a lot of people, you know, LeBron's like, I have the process that he follows or TB12, the, the program. Um, but it, it really is like my, my coach used to quote uh, the Villanova coach. Uh, I think his name is Jumbo Elliott. And he said, um, there's four words for every, to, for every great runner, live like a clock. And it's like structure your entire lifestyle for the activity of training. And um, to be clear, that is not what my life is like right now, sadly. Uh, I don't have like the world's greatest rhythm. I'm not in shape. So I'm not trying to be one of these like, you know, hustlers or strivers or, you know, these Twitter personalities who, you know, claim perfection or anything like that. Um, but I do think 
there are, if you do like a certain set of things to eliminate from your life, then like success becomes automatic um, or getting in shape becomes a byproduct, like the product of that greater abstraction. So like uh, if I drink less alcohol, go to bed early and wake up to an alarm like instantly and like get out of bed instantly, those three things, if I just did those three, getting in shape would be automatic. I completely agree. And it's interesting because I am a recovering or in the process of recovery on dealing with, um, how do I want to put this? I'm trying to get over being a person that constantly looks for the way things ought to be done because what the beauty of the process is, is actually finding it out for yourself. And to do that, you need to start with a really wide scope. And then, like you said, systematize. You naturally kind of want to do it when you really like something or when you really are loving a process, you automatically go that direction. I know in some of my younger, uh, more reckless years, I would constantly claim and brag about my caffeine intake and <laughs> to talk about how caffeine didn't affect me when I slept. And then I went for a period of time without taking any caffeine and watched my sleep increase dramatically almost overnight. And I was like, huh, I wonder what this is. And in hindsight, it's, hey, stupid, like you're, <laughs> you are in, impacted by these things in ways that you don't anticipate. That's just one example. But there's a lot of things that fall into that category of lifestyle changes that over a long enough period of time make a big difference in your life. I agree. Um, and these these wearable devices, the the whoops, the aura rings, the Fitbits, the Apple watches, they actually provide data that is quite jarring. Um, if you if you watch how many steps you're taking, it just the just to be aware of that changes your approach to your daily life. Um, and prior to these devices, we just, I mean, I guess if you carry around your phone, it automatically tracks tracks your your steps, but um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we just had no idea on mm -hmm. uh, like, like the real raw data. Having said that, though, I think um, there's something like mystical about performing at a high level um, that you, you do it best if you're less, um, like if you're logging less data in your own mind, like weighing yourself down mentally with it. So for example, if you're like a runner and you do a training log, I did that in high school uh, for one or two seasons and had terrible seasons because I was like sort of overthinking it. Like the best attitude is to be a hippie about it and just go run as a free spirit and train according to a program that a coach will give you. Uh, but then, you know, like do it for joy, like the primitive pursuit of, uh, you know, running fast in competition. It's like better than I think uh, logging every calorie that you eat or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, my coach always would say assassinate your desserts um we literally had to to put ketchup on top of any dessert that was on a table um in at the naval academy which was sad because it was wasted food but we were required to do it by our coach it was, it's called assassinating your dessert um which so you don't you're not like tracking calories but you're uh <laughs> you know as part of the culture of the program i thought that might be funny to share that's an interesting 
kind of like heuristic. And I bet probably like a, a funny thing, you sit down at the table with your, your running buddies and it becomes somebody grabs the ketchup first thing. And we're just, we're going to get this out of the way and ruin it. So it doesn't sit there and look at us. I have <laughs> found that so true this last summer, I was going to do an attempt at a half Ironman and spoke with several like ultra runners and they were asking me all these questions about, you know, how much time are you spending in Z2 and like, you know, how many miles are you logging on this? And I'm like, man, I'm just trying to like run a marathon. Like I'm not, (laughs) I can't think about trying to track all of these things. Like that's, I just am trying to finish and I'm not worried about time or anything like that. So I, yeah, I think that it's, you need to be aware of the improvements and sometimes you need to see the data, but you can easily get caught up in what that might look like and kind of too focused on it. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, I, it sucks the joy out of it sometimes. Um, did you did you finish the half Ironman? No. Uh, embarrassingly, like I think physically I would have been able to do it, but I drastically underprepared monetarily. I started buying things for it way too late. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I bought a wetsuit. And then I'm like, I still didn't have the shoes that I needed. And then I also didn't have my race entry. And, you know, all of a sudden it was like the last two weeks before the race. And I have like $3,000 worth of things I need to buy. And I was like, no, but it's on, I'm going to try for a full this year. I've got a much better head start on it and have almost all of the equipment. So we're going to, I'm going to try and do like a big, um, raise a bunch of money for charity, uh, and try and do that this year. So we'll see. That's really neat. I, that's an unexpected answer, by the way, I never would have considered the financial aspect of it. Um, it's tremendously expensive Uh, probably one of the most expensive sports that I, (laughs) I think that I've seen. Yeah, that's brutal. I mean, getting, getting in condition in three different sports is insanity and swimming and running are among the very best activities to get in shape very hard. I swam in high school. Um, I know how hard it is to get in swimming shape. It's just a time consuming enterprise. That was one of the things that I noticed too, is like it, you know, you want to go do like a trial and do like all three evolutions in one day. It's like, that's the whole day. You know, you wake (laughs) up, do your morning routine and it's like, you know, you spend an hour in the ocean or like in an open water or in the pool. And then, you know, you go uh, bike for three, four hours and then, you know, run for an hour or two, like you're, and then you're also cooked at the end of that. Like you're not doing, you're not walking after that. (laughs) You're going to go sit on the couch. Well, good luck with it. Um, I think it's very, very cool. I ran a marathon once and vowed at the finish line never to do it again. So I'm going to, I'm going to honor that commitment. (laughs) I appreciate you being able to stick with your word on that. (laughs) After watching you like the last couple of years, like from the sidelines, it seems like you have a very systematized way of thinking. We were just talking about like how your body is like systematizing different and optimizing for a certain process. And I would guess that you have spent a fair amount of time thinking about that. Was that something that you have always done or something that was developed over time? Uh, I've read quite a few books on the creative process and um, you you never know what you're really interested in, um, except in retrospect. Uh, I I call it spiraling into what you enjoy, spiraling into a a passion, if you will. 
And looking back on it now, I realized I've always really enjoyed writing the process of trying to express yourself in, in, on the, on the page. And, uh, that extends all the way back to early high school. I've always enjoyed it. And it's, it's a very odd thing because writing to me is painful, truly like physically painful sometimes, um, and very taxing. But nevertheless, even though I understand that it's painful, I still enjoy it. And I don't know exactly why. Um, but like, I think a lot, like if my family would describe me potentially, they've seen me behind a keyboard for a long time, all the time, you know, in high school, I'd be like in the, in the office, Windows one, whatever the version was back in the day, just typing away, happily typing away. Um, so the, the, that's that's like the core of it is this like inherent curiosity and like trying to make an argument. Um, but but the process of it, um, I've never like been a guy that has like prolific output, unfortunately, because I've never like mastered getting in the, the creative rhythm in a system year in and year out. I wish I could be better at this, um, but I definitely have discovered the very best way to fill yourself with ideas and then to start writing with them. Um, and this way I think is like um, boneheadedly obvious um, to everyone, but maybe they don't put it in these words. The, the most important thing is to choose very high quality sources, like the classics in the field, and to read those again and again and again. Then the, the key point is to take notes from clippings, so excerpting them into a file of any kind. This could be in, in your own uh, writing physically, uh, handwritten or digitally. And I founded a company around this process, which ultimately failed. We can get into that in a second. Um, but once you have excerpted something from a very high quality source, then you need to assign it a theme and then rewrite it in your own words, which proves that you understand what you just excerpted. And if you do that, it's very simple, then you're you're literally creating from what you're consuming. So um, making the process of consumption an actual affirmative creative act is the whole point of like reading quality things. So um, shifting it from a passive to an active exercise is bottom line like, um, you know, Marcus Aurelius could, could have told you this thousands of years ago, um, but that's the system. It's, it's very obvious, but, uh, and I, I've got a notion file that I use and I've probably excerpt two to four things in it on a given day. Um, and that just populates over time. So it's got, you know, many, many fields of things that have resonated with me. And that's another way to discover what you're interested in is to just do that daily for several years and then read the file and, and you're you're naturally going to pick things that are have a resonance with you so whatever is in that file is what you're passionate about so you don't have to go choose your passion like your passion chooses you you've talked elsewhere about that idea of active consumption and we are natural consumers and become more consumerish every day by just TikTok and especially it's just like this weird, our, our attention span just is getting lower and lower and lower over time, but need, you need an outlet to, in some way. And, and I've never heard somebody pitch trying to find your passion in that way, but I bet that that's extraordinarily effective. You also had 
mentioned in another conversation, I think you were you were a submariner, I believe, and you talked about, I think you were making a physics joke, but you were talking about the density, like a density function and having a bunch of ideas in like really close proximity and like bouncing against each other and how yeah. that is like a great way to form new and creative ideas. Yeah. Um, so the key point there is that every creative process to be successful has to reach a point where it is self-sustaining. And um, in the nuclear context, we learn about a thing called K-effective, the multiple of um, when you have a nuclear fission reaction occurring with, say, uranium, some isotope of uranium. If you have enough uranium close enough together at the right temperature and with the right conditions, you know, the sort of PV equals NRT sort of thing, um, you can start the reaction only when one fission creates more than one additional fission, one or more. So the, the reactor is so-called critical when the K effective is one, meaning one fission creates one or more fissions, additional fissions. So the reactor is self-sustaining. And so your, your creative process will only be self-sustaining if you have a, a high enough density of um, ideas that are colliding with one another. And so the idea is to collide ideas against each other. And so like all creativity is a process of recombination. Um, creativity does not come from within your head. It occurs outside of your head. Creative, creativity come, comes from without. There's a great quote on that. But um, I, I have this theory that when you see ideas on a page, those are the actual ideas, not the idea in your head. And this is a very fundamental thing. Um, in other words, you cannot actually have an idea unless it, you can see it outside of your head. Um, because we think in symbols, we're taught language when we're young. And language is words, and those words are symbols. And those symbols themselves are the ideas, not some metaphysical thing that doesn't exist inside your head. It's like the sentence is composed of symbols. Um, if I'm being a little bit pedantic, I don't, you know, stop me, but, but that is like the most important, um, like part of creating a self-sustaining process is to have enough ideas in front of you. This is why chat GPT is a massive game changer for everyone in the world. I am going to write a thread maybe tomorrow about how AI is massively still underhyped, not overhyped. Everyone says AI is very hyped. It's a, it's in a hype cycle right now. Um, I think because language is the most useful technology ever developed, now that machines can use language and understand it and then communicate them back to us, we already will have the ideas outside of our head structured to then combine with and play play with outside of our heads. Um, ChatGPT is incredibly useful, incredibly, incredibly useful, um, even if it's it's not like it puts ideas in front of you that you don't have to ever, it, it rescues, you, rescues you from the blank page forever. No one will ever struggle with a blank page. If you're 10 years old, in the next five years, it's going to get so good that um, it will pre-populate something that you can then massively refine and edit and make your own. Hey, ChatGPT, I've had quite a bit of time messing with it, and it is an unbelievable tool. And I think that it's going to aid 
much more than just writers for several of the reasons that you just discussed. It's it's remixing, it's new angles, it's all of these things. I heard an interesting take since you brought up ChatGPT. I heard an interesting take about how humans are interacting with it in that we are wanting ChatGPT and several of these other like image generation and like all of the, the things in that field we're wanting those systems to create new and original ideas, but we're wanting to like systematize ourselves. Like we're, we're wanting the robots to get creative and like, it's, it's not robots. It's, it's that area. It's AI. It's all of that. We're wanting new combinations built from that, but simultaneously we're trying to like decrease our own creativity which I think is a really, really interesting take by like trying to outsource that. And I think that that's not right. I think that your point of view is actually the more effective use case of something like this. It's having our own things fed back to us in a, in a new way. Yeah. Um, the way I think of it is all computing advances fundamentally uh, are about creating new interfaces between the machine and the human. And so if you look at every Apple product that has been a breakthrough, it's always a breakthrough in one particular inter, one particular aspect of the interface between the human and the machine. So the, 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 the click wheel for the original iPad, um, the, the, the resistive touch on the touch screen, the, the iPhone screen without the buttons, um, all of those are interface advancements and the chat GPT advancement was an interface advancement as well. It wasn't, so it's not about the fundamental technology behind it, which is are the, the, la the large language models. Those have been around the, the, the breakthrough was allowing somebody to creatively interact with these language models and they can summon all of the collective human knowledge in history um, within a very simple and intuitive interface. So that, um, if, if like when writing was invented in Sumeria, like that is when civilization took off. It was like jet fuel for civilization. And this is going to be like, you know, even much more, more powerful because you, uh, not only are just sharing ideas between one human to another, it's like, you're, you're interacting with these language models, which have trillions of parameters or, or will have trillions of parameters. So um, I, I really don't think it can be overstated. The, 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 the consequences of this technology are astounding in my view. I certainly agree. And I was thinking about why, or thinking about your history in preparation for this interview and thinking about your time as a, a speech writer for several very notable historical figures. And I'm wondering, uh, do you think that the the speechwriter position goes away for the military. Do they do they get that outsourced to ChatGPT? Um, that's funny. That's an that's a very good question, an unexpected one. Um, I think knowledge workers, people in creative fields, uh, designers, uh, both visual and um, and writers, I think those those fields are simply going to translate or are simply going to be transformed um, by the most creative people most effectively using these AI tools. So um, anytime a technology advances like this, 
I I have never had a concern that jobs would be lost. Uh, it's better to say that more jobs will be created, but the jobs will be much different and a higher order. Um, so it's going to emancipate our minds and free us to solve harder problems and uh, create even more beautiful things uh, with through these tools. Um, it's just that the people who are going to be the most successfully uh, creating with them are going to have to master these new set of tools. Um, it also, like Paul Graham, who's a famous Twitter personality and the founder of YC and just an incredibly uh, prolific writer himself, a, a deep thinker um, and well ahead of the curve on, on many technologies. He, he actually tweeted something that I massively disagree with. Um, and that is he will never outsource his thinking to any of these tools. Uh, in other words, he prefers writing in Word or writing in Google Docs or whatever. Um, he, he, but he, he doesn't think that um, he would, he, he, he doesn't want to, the, for, for the machine to put words in his mouth. Um, and he thinks it'll be inherently less interesting and surprising and creative, the output. Um, I think he's going to change his mind on that. I think he's going to use these tools and um, take ownership of the end product, obviously every single word of the end product. Um, but I think these these tools are inherently useful for even a guy like him, even though he can, he can write well without them. Um, so to answer your actual question, I think um, the necessity for leaders to communicate throughout the breadth and depth of an organization and then externally from that organization uh, both to sort of the masses and then to the elites, all of those things that that necessity to persuade an audience is um, evergreen. It will never go away. Um, and making words sing is, I think, an inherently human uh, capacity um, because you have to like think about what will reach an audience and emotionally and intellectually at the same time, what will hit their head and their heart at the same time. Um, so I think the speechwriters of the future are going to have these great, powerful ways to um, assist them in helping leaders think, because that's all you're really trying to do in that job. The point of speechwriting is to not to write for someone, it's to write with them and um, to help them uh, reach these other human beings. And so uh, maybe too much too long of an answer to all of your questions, but that's my those are my thoughts. Earlier, you were talking about rereading the greats and like solidifying on like a few handful of like just key core ideas and just kind of resonating on those and, and marinating on them. What were some of your big takeaway ideas that you took from spending time with these um, General Mattis, uh, Secdef, uh, Panetta, is that how you pronounce that? Yep. Um, yeah, what were your what were your takeaways from them? Those little excerpts that you pulled from your time with them. Yeah. Um, first of all, I learned a lot more than just speech writing with those um, from those experiences. And oh yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting at. So <laughs> okay. Um, because what you're doing, like. I learned about writing and about speech writing clearly because that was uh, part and parcel to the role. But what you're really seeing is leadership and specifically leadership at the strategic level and uh, of large enterprises, large organizations. So Pentagon, U.S. Central Command, et cetera. 
And I started at U.S. Central Command when there were 230,000 um, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marine, Coast Guardsmen in the, the area of responsibility called U.S. Central Command. And uh, that spans from, you know, let's see, uh, Israel on the west to um, Afghanistan on the east and from Tajikistan on the north down to Oman in the, in the south. So the Middle East broadly. And uh, it's a challenge to lead an organization um, which has that, that breadth of uh, different activities ongoing. And so behind the scenes, what you're seeing is how they are um, sort of getting the big ideas expressed uh, both to their leadership, so to the president and to the secretary of defense, uh, and down to the the soldiers on the ground. You know, somebody who's wearing boots uh, in Baghdad. And uh, one of the coolest things uh, that 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 Petraeus, David Petraeus, pioneered um, was writing what he called the SecDef Weekly Report. And uh, he held himself accountable to writing to the SecDef every Saturday morning. And so that was the principal responsibility of actually the speech writing team and what he called the commander's initiatives group or his brain trust. So there's maybe eight to 10 of us in this sort of office adjacent to his. And um, throughout the week, he would be emailing us ideas of what to put into the SecDef weekly, which is what am I doing in my area of responsibility, Mr. Secretary? And that was extremely difficult to write, but unbelievably important because by the end of every week, he sort of knew what the big takeaways were from what he was learning that week and then how to implement them and oversee them. And then sort of in a cyclical process, capture feedback and then refine, further refine the big ideas. Um, so that then would be the basis for, you know, memos or guidance to the troops um, or public statements or speeches. Um, so they would reverberate like what was on the page. This is a secret document. So um not top secret, but not confidential. So in between, uh, the, the, so it's it's the most popular level of classification at that level, and so you're on um, you're you're on your unclassified machine for part of the day, and your classified machine for the other part of the day, writing this classified memo. But then you take unclassified portions, the ideas from it, and you can use them in in public speeches and so forth. So um, what what you learn is like how important writing is to inform those big ideas. And Petraeus once gave a speech back at Princeton. Um, he accepted a, an award called the Madison Medal. And we wrote like, what are the responsibilities of a strategic leader? And it's a very interesting, but quite simple ideas. Uh, it's, to, it's to get the big ideas correct, to communicate them, to oversee their implementation, and then to capture feedback and refine the ideas in a, in a cycle. And he always said, this is... Um, conceptually easy cycle to understand, not optional, but very hard to execute. And uh, so that's what I learned is like the process of leadership through the, the process of ordering your ideas and writing. Uh, so a lot of people don't realize like 80% of my job wasn't writing the speeches. It was like doing the memos internally that no one ever saw except for a very small handful of people at the Pentagon. It's a really interesting take on what leadership means. I think many outsiders and even people in the military, for that matter, if you were to ask them about the definition of leadership, it usually comes 
back to some war movie about how people led the charge in the face of all odds. And, you know, it's, it's a fighting thing typically is how it's pitched, not, you know, it's a war of words more is what you're describing. I'm thinking. Um, well, words can be used as tools to win a competition of ideas is what I would say. And, um, to be words can be wielded to unify um, large ideas into a common narrative, which then inspires groups of people to action. And ultimately, that's what some of the most inspirational military leaders have done is to inspire this action through their example, principally, and through their words. Um, there's a limit to that, of course, like uh, I've written about that a little bit, but um, that's that's what I think, like the point of the point of leadership is to uh, decide and to inspire action among a group. And this is why like political ideology and like politicians are, um, you know, the most successful politicians figure out how to like um how to unify a, a broad set of ideas into like um, a worldview and then capture people's attention of that on that worldview. Um, and yeah, I'll stop there. It's like a, what you're trying to do is like settle on a, philos a, a philosophical point of view about the world and share it with people. And often that resonates. I think what you just described is something that very, very few people do, but it may be one of the most important things that we can do because it informs how we act. It informs what's important to us and the things that we're pursuing in life. I, I think if you were to ask, I just think of junior troops primarily in the military of all branches, and you were to ask them you know, what their, what their definition of that is. And I don't know if anybody could really answer that. Yeah. Um, meaning what is motivating their everyday actions to get up and put themselves in harm's way and that sort of thing. Is that what you mean? Yeah. And they, then a lot of people um, say you're 21 years old and you're an army um, sergeant, like they, they might not be able to express like what's motivating them is I think, I think that's what I'm trying to understand what your question is. Yes. That's a much more eloquent wording. And, and, but then take that to past the service. It's, it, you know, what, what is it that we're going after everything, the time horizon and the thought process isn't looking big enough. It's very much so focused on what's happening today and maybe tomorrow but just kind of getting through this process rather than thinking like, Hey, what am I, what am I going after? Why am I doing this? Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Um, well, everyone's motivated by different things. Um, some of the most, some of the broadest things people that motivate people are attaching themselves to something that's larger than themselves um, so that they can create meaning in their life. And um, I remember my very first day, at the Naval Academy, looking down at my name tag and seeing the, the name Michael A on an actual military uniform. It was like an out-of-body experience um, because I'd never associated my last name with the country of the United States. 
And, you know, there's like, it's a physical manifestation that you're connected to this larger thing called the constitution, which is the compact that, you know, uh, overarching compact of our Republic. Um, so fundamentally we're all motivated to protect a way of life, um, and to protect, if you're taught history well enough, you understand it's like a precious idea. Um, it's an experiment and so forth, um, that we're running in real time. And, uh, it's, it, incredibly unlikely that like life would exist on earth. And then um, we'd reach a point where like um, an actual constitutional Republic is self-sustaining. Um, but then you realize it actually is not self-sustaining. It requires uh, everyday work forever if we're going to maintain it. So like, ultimately that's, I think where people like why they potentially join the service is like, they, they might not be able to say it in those words, but they're like, I want to serve something. And um, it's like a natural patriotism that draws them to that service. Um, I really believe, however, and this is a deeply held conviction that I did not understand until I left the military, which is very odd. When I was in the military for maybe 12 years plus the four years at the academy, I never would have like had this like realization about service. Um, what you tend to do, and I was on a submarine once and like I was on the periscope where we were surfaced and I was on the bridge and I was looking over at um, the Atlantis resort, which is um, on an island literally called paradise. And here I am like trudging away, stuck on a submarine and looking at people like in the distance on a cruise ship that's like based in paradise island in the Caribbean. Um, and I was like, man, I really resent these people. They're having fun. I'm just stuck here uh, breathing the metallic, you know, the 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 smell of uh, amine, which is sort of the chemical that we use in a submarine. Um, and I did not realize that service is much, much more profound than that because it separates you. When you take the oath of office, you um, are profoundly separated from other American citizens in the sense that you now literally um, have decided to, to join this subset of American citizens that are currently in active duty service. Um, and stop me if I'm just getting super long-winded, but this is the point I'm trying to make. Um, what, you, what you, like on a surface level, you're trying to protect Americans from harm, but actually that's not your real role. Your, your job is to free them to do whatever the hell they want to do. Um, and not to not just to protect them from harm or protect the country, um, to keep the country so so con, so so called safe. Um, so like I always thought that was my job. My job in the military is to keep America safe. It's not not at all your job. It's to prevent most Americans from having to serve, so that they can do more interesting things in the arts and the humanities and science and engineering, like freeing. The rest of Americans to go do really cool things, to create great art, to create keeping up with the Kardashians, whatever it is. Don't resent them for that. Like the health of our society is the output of our scholars, our artists, and our engineers. That's the health of our society. So the point of the military is to free them to do that, not just to keep the country safe. And that's, I think, a much more interesting way of looking at service. 
this will be a, a broad generalization about service that isn't entirely accurate, but I know that many people feel it while in the service, it is extremely difficult to gain the empowerment to be doing things that are not affiliated with service, doing creative work, you know, owning a business. There, the population of people within the service that do those things is very, very small. What's ironic about what you just said is that I, I agree with you. That is what we are serving is allowing them to do that. But in order for them to do that, we have to like not be able to do that kind of like that. That's the sacrifice that we're making. And there are certainly that's like I said, it's a generalization, but I've talked in several past episodes before about how the military can kind of stifle creativity. There isn't this open, free-minded thinking that is encouraged or pushed. It's not fostering to those types of ideas because there is a, a standard operating procedure for everything. And so it's, I, what's I, like I said, that's ironic that you say that because it's, you have to sacrifice your ability to do those things and so that others can do it. It's a, a different level of sacrifice than I think most people talk about. Yeah. Um, and I want to react to that briefly. Um, the people who pay the ultimate price and make the ultimate sacrifice, they truly have given their lives um, for this meaningful purpose. Um, people who are, you know, life-changing injuries and so forth. People who have, um, you know, um, ongoing mental injuries. Um, that That is true sacrifice. Um, but for people like me who were never injured in the service, um, I'm not sure I would use the word sacrifice. I, I've been thinking a lot about this because often I'm kind of frustrated that I spent, you know, 15 some odd years in my 20s and early 30s in the military and feel really behind professionally behind my peer group because they're all senior vice presidents at whatever company because they've been there forever and you know they had 15 extra years to get started in the civilian world um so i sometimes think man i made a sacrifice but i just don't think that's true because um you know like people people say people say thank you for your service right and um they do that too because it's like socially awkward when you realize you like somebody served in the military and they didn't and they feel somehow guilty which this absolutely misplaced emotion in my view um like i think it should be like the relationship between people who have served and haven't served should feel like the relationship between like a mechanic and a farmer like the mechanics doing something important and the farmers doing something important and they should just acknowledge each other by like nodding at each other like thank you for doing what you do thank you for doing what you do and that's like a, a mutual appreciation because they're all part of the same group, not part of different groups, like those who have served and those who have not. The same group is like, we're all uh, loyal to the constitution, whether we served or not. And one of us served one function and you're serving some other function and like some financial services firm or whatever. Um, so I just don't think sacrifice is the right concept, except from the first sort of um, group of people that I mentioned. Um, I, I kind of need to get over this because like, I don't, I'm not sure how to characterize it in my brain. Like what um, do I, 
it doesn't matter that I'm behind professionally ish because I gain so much from it as well. So it's complicated in my mind. That's an interesting take. And I, I think I would disagree on just like the bottom level, just because if it truly was as close as you say, and there was what you're implying is that there's not a lot of difference. We're serving different functions, but it's just a different type of job. And it is, but I think more, way more people would do it if, it, if the gap was that smaller. Like there's just is so few people who actually are in the military. And that isn't to tout that, like, I hate that 1% bullshit that people say that is the stupidest thing. <laughs> and that is just, it's not a very intelligent way to describe what being in the military is like, but because it is such a small portion of people, it's not like, it's not 50% farmers and 50% mechanics. It's 99% this and 1% this. Yeah. What is interesting that you speak about the professional differences that you've kind of experienced and are working to overcome. I felt the exact same way. And I didn't even, I served, I mean, I, I served for four years and I, but I still feel that. And it's interesting because getting out of the military was exactly what I needed to understand everything else in life that I wanted to accomplish. Before that, I was this dirtbag kid who just like had no aspirations of anything. But then getting out, I saw I'm like, wow, look at all of these things that I can go do. But then for some reason that 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 small time period, the thing that actually unlocked this different worldview, this different perspective and an understanding of what I was actually capable in life. Somehow I, I look on that period as it, it's a setback. And for the exact same things that you said, uh, it's my friends are here. They have, they already, I got out and my friends were, they had their degrees already. It's, it's the same thing, but just kind of rewind it a little bit. Yeah. Um, and this, does this get at your, your previous point related to uh, the lack, the, the common lack of people doing creative work outside of their roles, their specific roles in the military, and therefore they're not um, sort of in that uh, cyclical continuous cycle of learning, something that's not their, their assigned task. So let's say you're going through nuclear power school and then you're serving on a submarine. Um, you've, you're already busy enough doing that job that you can't um, improve yourself elsewhere. Is that what you mean? Yes. That's exactly yeah. what I'm getting at. And that's, yeah, I, yeah, go for it. Go ahead. So I, it's funny because nuclear power school and serving on the submarine were the hardest intellectual things I've ever done by an order of magnitude. And, you know, I've gone to Princeton, I've gone to the Naval Academy. So I've been in like um, challenging academic environments, but nuclear stuff took it to a whole new level. Um, and it's just exceedingly um it's it's first principles all the way to the metal like you know everything about nuclear radi radiation you know all of the chemistry all of the electrical engineering all of the calculus every everything all the way there's like eight different subjects that all combine together to um inform how to operate safely the nuclear reactor and um i often think man i i knew so 
much science and engineering. Um, when I was uh, when I um, successfully took the the chief nuclear engineer exam um, for when you're sort of halfway through your your first tour on a submarine. Um, you go to naval nuclear reactors and take this extremely hard exam and you have to have all of it in your head. And I often think I have forgotten more on that one subject alone that has not helped me at all. <laughs> like, and so professionally, it's not been a stalagmite that has been growing because of all the drippings of all the things that I've been learning. All the drippings have been all over the place. Like I've learned, you know, I've been in a lot of different professional roles and this admiral, right before I was deciding whether to get out or stay in the military, Admiral Stavridis, uh, who I think he was um, the Stackur, maybe uh, the U.S. Uh, European command commander and the NATO Allied commander. Um, he like he was a four-star admiral and made time for me. I was like a lowly lieutenant, and you know seven ranks below him. And he said something like, "What's cool about the Navy is you go to sea." And then you come on land and you learn on each of these uh, different contexts. So you can challenge yourself on your land shore assignments and your sea assignments. And it's, so it's very creatively refreshing to shift from one to the other. Um, and meanwhile, you're being promoted. So uh, within that bureaucracy, you're just going higher and higher and higher while having more interesting stuff. And um, if you get out, you're just going to leave your stalag stalagmite droppings in all these different areas and you won't be elevated to the pinnacle of that stalagmite. And so what, like the coolest thing about like seeing all these people in Washington DC and traveling with them, it was like, I was, I would, I would always imagine a metaphor of like a bunch of stalagmites and the people that are talking to each other are on the top of each stalagmite. Um, so everybody that, you know, Leon Panetta was meeting was like the CEO of whatever organization. So he was the CEO talking to another CEO, both at the top of their bureaucrat bureaucratic stalagmites. Um, and that's like a lot of like what people say is like their professional goal is to reach the top of their field. Um, and so he advised me to stay in for that very reason. And I, I often think about that because I've sort of jumped around. Um, I don't I don't think I'm going to regret it on my deathbed because I've had a really interesting, unique life so far and done interesting things in different fields. Um, but that's one way to think about professional development. One thing I'd like to talk about is just how challenging the transition is when you get out. And everyone across the board to a person universally underestimates the, the significance of that transition. Um, if you've served for one year or 10 years or 20 years, um, one thing you can do is sort of stay in the defense industrial complex. Um, and that is a very natural transition or way to transition. Um, I very affirmatively made the decision that I, I found that broader military industrial complex to be soul sucking. Um, and uh, I, I really think one of the worst things in life is to be cynical, but I got kind of cynical about it um in in many ways because a lot of these defense contractors um i i believe waste a lot of american money american taxpayer dollars um but so if you want to like like do a hard break and do something other than the defense industrial complex that's really really hard to do if you've served for like 10 15 years um you know trying to like take an uh an interview at google after having been a submariner is extremely hard. Um, 
I, I joined Palantir, which is an, an incredibly technical company um, composed of primarily, you know, 95% of um, world-class software engineers and computer scientists and so forth, um, developers. Uh, but I joined in a non-technical role. Um, and that learning curve was vertical for me. Stepping into their company Slack and just um, trying to make sense of all of the technical concepts that people were talking about behind the scenes was, you know, I, I consider myself, uh, I can assimilate a lot of information very fast. It's one thing I think I'm very good at and like sort of distilling that information into plain English. Um, but that was super, super hard to make that transition. And emotionally, just a, just like a black and white difference between being in the military, which is like, you're kind of a domesticated animal to like, you have to like uh, literally live with the wolves um and it's just hard man I, I i really would love to hear your thoughts on this it is extremely difficult and i i vastly underestimated it as well even spending four years i still to this day i got out in 2018 and i think in some ways i'm still working on it yes and 100%. Going through the podcast, the podcast process over the last year has certainly accelerated that. I have mentioned in several prior interviews when I got out, I tried to kind of walk away from service, which was the exact opposite thing of what I should have done. In my head, I was like, I don't want to be just this this veteran that just is rubbing it in people's faces all the time, and was so repulsed by that. I made a very conscious effort to not bring it up and try to just kind of assimilate into society again, which wasn't the right thing to do. Like I said, talking with people and understanding other people's experiences and also embracing the tools and resources available have been extremely helpful. But I don't know, the, the whole, what is it? the phrase that the Marines talk about, like once a Marine, always a Marine kind of thing. That was something that I think everybody kind of feels like you're, it will always be a part of you. And there may be a lingering thing forever there. That's just kind of in the back of your head about it. It's always going to be there. Yes. Yes. Well said. I, by the way, I would, I would commend, I would recommend the um, street journal op-ed that Jim Edis wrote by himself without any assistance. Um, I'm not sure when he wrote it exactly, but um, it's called The Meaning of Their Service. And it is an absolutely beautiful, breathtaking, spellbinding um, 800 words about what service means. Um, it probably will like self-contradict a couple of the things that we've been talking about, or at least that I've said, um, because in his view, it's like, um, it's just different. It's like different to serve in that capacity um, than it is to do the mechanic farmer thing. Um, but anyway, I would just recommend people read that. Um, I may be behind a paywall, but uh, I think I have the I have the version I can can post somewhere. Yeah, perfect. I'd love to get a link to that in the show notes so people can read it. And I haven't read it, so I would love to read it. Do you regret getting out? No, not at all. Um, I thought you were going to say, do you regret serving? 
<laughs> that would be a bold statement. <laughs> no, I'm, I haven't no. had anybody on here yet that I would ask that question. I would need to find somebody very salty because I, I don't think that anybody would say, I don't think anybody. Oh, no, I agree with it to some extent. I, I've actually had a debate. We were at a bar in Annapolis with um, my best friends and many of them are submariners and we were all around the table and many have moved back to Annapolis where all hang out. And um, I think we had, you know, the number one grad in our class was there. Um, he was a Marine. And then the rest of us, I think, were submariners. And I asked the question, do you guys regret it going to the academy, for example? And then obviously serving subsequent to that. And <laughs> every one of them is like, no, 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 no. I love it. It was great. It was um, I would never change a thing. And I was like, I don't know. I I, I think I regret going. Uh, part of me does, like a significant part. Um, because of some of the things we've been talking about uh, already. Uh, like, because, for example, the best way to put this is I was obsessed with technology in high school. I loved computers. I went to the science fair. Um, it's sort of a nerd in that way. And um and this was 1997 when I graduated. What I ought to have done is move directly to Silicon Valley and go to Stanford. And I could have started a great company that could have changed the world um, and or you know done something really interesting at one of the unicorns um, because that's who really I was. And then I changed into a different person at the academy, did political science because I wanted to round out the engineering, which is, you know, you get a bachelor of science there. Then I did more engineering and nuclear power school and so forth and um, came out of it. And I, I have naturally spiraled back into this creative world. I still love, um, you know, creative technical tools and things like that. Um, so in that way, like part of me does regret not going to where I was naturally inclined to go, but instead decided to, you know, serve the country, <laughs> which is kind of a weird thing to say. But I definitely don't regret getting out because I am. Uh, uh, like I just didn't want to serve for the next several years underwater. Um, and I was looking at like eight of the next 11 years at sea underwater on a submarine to then, you know, be this, the, the commanding officer, and then, you know, go to be the Commodore of a squadron of submarines and so forth and so on. Um, I think I could have done very well if I stayed in. Um, I think I really could, cause I, I love writing and I think that's like a really important part of these leadership positions and like the people who can communicate super effectively, I think are elevated, promoted very uh, rapidly. Um, but I didn't uh, meet my wife Maggie until I was out. Or no, I, I, I was still in when I met her, but um, I was making the decision to get out or stay in like in parallel with that. And I'm like, I, you know, I would like to get married to her and I'll be underwater for eight of the next 11 years. That doesn't sound sound right. So I'm very happy with where I am in life. Like, I, I feel like I'm having um, I have a great work life balance. Um, and that's like probably the most important thing. And I'm not sure I would have had that if I would have stayed in. Um, that's not to say that it's not perfect for some people to, you know, become uh, senior military leaders. But. That's my personal perspective. <clears throat>
I normally ask questions like this towards the end of the conversation, but I think it may be relevant based on how you responded to this question. What is the end game for you? Like, <laughs> what is, what will you be upset with if your life, like, what do you wish that you would have done if you like, if you died tomorrow? Like, what, what would be that one thing? Because I'm guessing, I'm going to speculate here before you answer it has something to do with some sort of accomplishment around building a company. You've, you've talked about, uh, you've started Erasmus, uh, the personal content. I forget what the exact phrase that you used for that was, but that, and you also talked about why you regret joining the Navy, a part of it. I won't, uh, won't fault you for that, but yeah. thinking Thank of you. what you could have, what you could have achieved had you not gone in and so that tells me that what's your that brings me to that question um first of all i want to clarify that like i think 20 years from now everything i just said i might like amend uh or revise because i feel like part of that is like a super selfish way to think of think of that experience serving in the military and like I bet if I get more wise and mature, I'll probably like say that the statements that I made before were just like selfish and immature. But in any event, um, like I have a, a file on my computer I call the basics. And it's just like putting in plain English, just bullet points of like basic things I've realized. And um, it goes from like, here, I'll just, I can bring it up. Um, like the things you realize when you move through life and if you're like thinking through life, um, you're like learning about like the nature of reality is like the first thing, the first layer of things you learn about like what is life like? It's like both beautiful and sublime and harsh and unforgiving at the same time. So that's like the reality of life, your environment, your conditions that are surrounding you. And like the whole and most important part is like choosing who to surround yourself with and like creating actively creating your own environment and then you learn you can actually like change uh your environment you're not like a victim of that environment if you will and then it's like okay well what attitude do you want to adopt for your life like what is the, your disposition your like outlook your approach um so once you understand the nature of life it's like how do you attack it so like what kind of attitude do you want and i always like people who are curious inquisitive and aware so that's like step layer two layer three is like well what do you want to learn like what's the knowledge like what understanding do you want to develop and then you learn like well the way to succeed in life is thinking ahead and cooperating with others and then finally it's like what is your goal what is your pr purpose in life like what's your direction and to me it's pretty simple health in mind body and spirit uh relationships that are positive and loving um with family and friends and a positive contribution to some worthwhile endeavor. So like, it's not enough just to be healthy in all of those respects and to have positive and loving relationships. Like humans have an innate drive for novelty and originality and like creating something new. I've always been obsessed with this idea of knowledge management, personal knowledge management. Um, I would love to build something around that um, before I go. Um, and uh, so that's like, that's how I would describe like my purpose, my animating purpose is all of those things.
<laughs> um, that's a pretty good answer. I yeah, yeah. high level, but a, a good answer nonetheless. I hope that in some time that you will look back and maybe that that feeling of maybe regret, even if it's a small tinge, will go away and that it will be feeling that sense of serving something that's and creating something that's worthwhile, even though that uh, there isn't anything inherently creative about serving in the military, I don't think in, in some respect it is, but it's generally you're filling a position and a body for a larger purpose. But I think that that's, I, I'm like having like a weird kind of out of body experience right now. Cause I never thought that I would be the person to like sit here and try and convince you of this. Um, <laughs> was the last thing that I thought I was going to be saying today. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, my cross country coach at, at Navy, he always used to say, spend yourself in a worthy cause. I really like that. Um, mm -hmm. like spend your energy in some pursuit that is, that you can define as, as worthy. Um, like we're, we're really only here on life. Like it's, it's a miracle that we're here. Like I did a thread the other day, um, on like seven mind blowing things that you can discover about the universe. And I watched this video for like an hour, um, over the last couple of years, I've watched this video by a, uh, a professor who describes uh, what he calls um, the origin of the elements. And it is like, for some reason, it's captivating to me that all of the atoms that make you up have been in four stars during the history of the universe. And um, it just so happened that those atoms on their fourth uh, visit around a star, which happens to be uh, our sun, like landed right at the surface of the earth. And like, you know, like we're, we're here now. It's an absolutely mind blowing miracle. And so we ought to be doing something with it. And I actually thought, um, this is going to get really heavy for a second. Um, I, I actually had this thought the other day, like for no reason, but I'm like, uh, this is going to, I'm, I'm taking a risk here and sharing this with you. Um, very strong risk. Um, my roommate at nuclear power school um, committed suicide. And um, I actually thought about him while watching that video and thinking, man, what a miracle it was that he was alive. And what a shame it was that he took his own life because maybe he didn't understand or internalize sufficiently like how miraculous his own life was. And I think all of us should like step back and realize we have one opportunity to do something interesting and to help other people or to, you know, love other people. Um, so yeah, that was a significant um, event in my life, but I'm like still processing that. Um, that happened 20 years ago. So um, yeah, I just wanted to sort of reinforce, emphasize the point of how unlikely it is that we're here and how special it is. Well, first off, I appreciate your vulnerability in sharing that the Navy faces probably the biggest challenge right now, in my opinion, is probably worse than it's ever been, but they tr face a tremendous challenge with suicide right now and morale as a whole. Um, there's a lot of work to be done on that. 
the idea of having one life to live and like serving a worthy cause is something that resonates with me really hard. And it's a very tremendous burden at the same time, because I'm not sure that if you feel this way as well, but sometimes I worry that like, maybe you get to the end of your life and you won't have like completed enough. Like you, if you, if you start to think like that, sometimes I feel like I need to suppress that feeling because I feel like if I think too much that way, I would literally quit my job, quit everything that I'm doing and commit my life to solving like the world's biggest problems, space, deep sea exploration, nuclear energy. Like, why am I not working on that? And I like, I, I scare myself sometimes. Like, and I haven't, I was just talking to my wife about this the other day. She was just like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, there's just so many interesting problems. And like, why, why am I not working on those? Do you ever feel that way? That's an absolutely beautiful point. I, I, uh, I, uh, really like that idea that you just shared. Um, because I think the other day I had a realization as well that, um, maybe I'm not doing things things that are tackling up a, a vision, like really to execute vision, um, which would then allow me to learn very fast. Cause like th there's a great Naval Ravikant quote. He said something like success is merely a byproduct of learning. The more curious you are about it, the more successful you will be. That's a great idea, set of ideas. And so maybe I'm not curious enough about a hard problem at the moment, and it's not driving me to do something um, valuable for society or for me or whomever. Um, so I think like I need to do some like internal personal reflection about like, maybe I need a mission. Like what mission do I want to go on? What problem do I want to solve? That's hard and interesting. Um, I want to say one other thing that's kind of related, kind of not related, but I really appreciate your invitation, uh, to have me on this podcast. And you said such like kind words, like you, you've, are a thoughtful guy and I've been following you. And I was like, man, like, you know, lately, whatever I tweet doesn't get any engagement. And I don't know if that's the algorithm or me or, or, or what have you. And like, it's just it, your note reinforced for me that like, if you put yourself out there, it might actually impact someone else. Like, um, and you have no idea who is reaching. And the more you put yourself out there, the more you discover about yourself. And so there's like a, and then the more you discover about yourself, the more you can share with others. And uh, that's a wonderful reinforcing cycle, uh, a feedback loop, a spiral, I call them. Um, so like starting that spiral can be super useful for you and very useful for someone else. So I think more people should crawl out of their shell and um, shout into the void for as long as it takes to reach somebody. And just keep that momentum going. I wish I would have started tweeting in 2009 when I started in my Twitter account. But instead, I lurked and did nothing. In the first 10 years I was on Twitter, I tweeted 100 times. That's it. And um, reached exactly no one. And then I started tweeting more regularly and engaging with people directly and like developing relationships very genuinely with like, I would reach out to Jack Butcher when he had like 4,000 followers and we have become very good friends. And like, it's incredible that you can, like, it's the world's most 
incredible thing that you can reach anyone in the world if you just put yourself out there enough. That just did not exist for all of written history until the last couple of decades. It's really a remarkable thing. So I don't know why I just said all that, but I've been meaning to share it with you. I appreciate it. From a third party external observer perspective of you and what you're doing, I would certainly believe without having you having said what you just did that you were already on that path and that you were already serving this thing because you are doing what appears to be interesting to you. And I think that there's an important line that needs to be drawn about searching the world to do something that the world wants rather than pursuing what it is that you want because there's a certain element of authenticity that people can pick up on and eventually doing something for other people in a way that isn't authentic, isn't one, it's not sustainable. And two, it's not valuable because it's not you. So I think that whatever path that you're on right now, maybe I, I'm not going to tell you what the most important thing is for you, but it certainly appears optically that you are. And I certainly have found value in it. I literally have been, I was listening to you on Clubhouse like years ago now. Uh, So I, this is, this conversation has been a really long time coming. I know I had only messaged you a year ago on Twitter about getting on the show, but this is, I've been waiting for this moment and it's, it's interesting because there, this podcast has been a very great medium to talk to interesting people, people that I have looked up to. Uh, a guy I just recorded with earlier this week, he also, we were just kind of talking about something randomly. And um, for some reason, he brought up Jack Butcher. And I was like, Oh, like somebody else who, who knows Jack, like that's, that's great. Like I also have been following Jack and he's like, Oh no, we're friends. And I was like, (laughs) they like, they live near each other and are are like friends. And I'm like, what? Like I, and so I, in the same way that you talk about putting yourself out there and speaking, even if seemingly to no one, whether it be on Twitter, whether it be a podcast, whether it be something you need to give yourself the opportunity for serendipity or karma or whatever you want to call it to begin and do it long enough where it can come back to you. Totally agree. Um, there is, I think, an important aspect to human happiness, which is like standing for something, having some conviction around uh, like just having a set of ideas that like fit together into what I would call a personal philosophy. There's an incredibly great book called This I Believe, which was, um, I think, I think maybe uh, Edward R. Murrow, the radio personality and newscaster uh, in the fifties, I think started this uh, series uh, where he would tape, he would record somebody talking about literally what they believe in two minutes and just play that on the radio. And these are all very, very thoughtful people who have throughout the course of their lives, like developed a personal philosophy about something, anything could be like fly fishing or something. Um, But there's, you know, 
profound things you can say about life in the context of fly fishing. Um, and these, this series uh, was transcribed into a book and it's, it's, you can get it on Amazon called This I Believe and it's really wonderful. And my point is, I think it'd be great if we all developed a personal philosophy. So on our deathbed, like we stand for something and we've shared it to the world. And uh, I think uh, what I'd like to express further is that you can't develop a worldview without sharing it in conversation with other people, like without colliding those ideas against the ideas of other people, um, which again um, demands that you put yourself out there. Um, and I, my life has been enriched a lot since I started um, just writing things online and getting over my own ego. The thing that stops people from sharing is actually they have a high ego, not that they have a low ego. That's a very counterintuitive um, concept. But like in my early days, I was like, oh man, people are going to care about what I say. And therefore I'm not, I should be like, ooh, maybe I should hesitate to, to share it. But the fact is no one cares at all what your ideas are in a sense. They're just too worried about their own things and their own sort of how they're positioning themselves in the world. Um, so like if you counterintuitively, if you have like a super low ego and you're like, no one's really going to care about this, but I'm going to share it anyway. That's like the thing that like is the unlock that helps you get, get out there. And I really think like doing that, it just like, um, I, I really think it, it just, although there's billions of people and it's like hard to reach and resonate with those, with, with, um, uh, those people, there's actually like super small subsets of those people for whom it, you could become best friends or like with whom you could become best friends. Um, and it's really cool to, to like make contact with those people. And like uh, David Perel calls it being a lighthouse. You're like, you put your light on and everyone's like, oh, wow. You're like attract the people who have the same resonant frequency as you. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a really fun. Like uh, a lot of my very good friends now I only know having met from Twitter and it's just a neat group of people like who are just uh, inspiring. So mm -hmm. I, I think that that's so true. I was listening to somebody talk the other day. I forget who it was, but they were saying something. They were speaking to people who are worried or nervous about putting themselves out there online. And the point that they were making is that you, first of all, nobody gives a shit. Like uh, the deal is, is you can't put yourself out there too much. Like it is impossible to do that because it's what you put out doesn't get seen in the way that you think it does. If you yeah. post a tweet and somebody sees it, there's a good chance that they won't see the next one. You could post the something completely different 10 minutes later, they wouldn't see it. And it's yep. because the way the viewing habits are not exactly intuitive to how we we don't think about how we consume our own information, but we have a viewpoint about how others perceive it. And that just is wrong, first of all. And then the second point is exactly what you just said. By doing that, you by putting yourself out there in a way, you naturally attract the people who agree. It's almost dangerous because it, you kind of become your own echo chamber of like, everybody who believes that is going to be interested. It's either that or you just attract a bunch of people who want to like follow you and shit on you, which is usually like politically driven. And, you know, it's not a good thing. 
but generally you're going to attract the people who also believe that we think about, or I consistently think about how divisive Joe Rogan is in some ways, but he's like the most popular person ever. Like he's got, I, I don't have any viewpoint on his opinions on anything, but he's got some very controversial opinions about stuff and some people hate him, but everybody loves him. So like, why, why would people think, or why would you think that that wouldn't be the same for you? I agree. Um, to be clear, I am, uh, still not excellent at this, uh, yet. Um, meaning I still self-censor 90% needlessly self-censor 95% of my good ideas, um, and rather than share them, which is silly. I should be tweeting like 10 X more than I, than I actually do. Um, because it, it would, it would, um, like I said, um, I think everyone should have a continuous cycle of learning. And like, I always resented people who just shared random thoughts on Twitter, but really what they're doing is just clearing out their creative process and like getting it like the, the, the flow of information out of their heads, which is helping their own process of growth. Um, I, I want to read to you a, a statistic that I sort of created um, by doing the math. You're going to like this, I think. The internet is 1,165,000 groups of 4,000 people. I really like that, that way of thinking about it. So there's like every little niche that you can like possibly think of still has 4,000 people. Um, and there's 165,000 groups of those. Um, and like Twitter's daily active users would fill the largest stadium in the United States 2,000 times. So like that's a... And that's that's like the University of Michigan Stadium. It's like 110,000 people times 2,000 are on Twitter every single day. So it's mm -hmm. just an, it's the 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 scale of opportunity on the internet is um, hard to grasp. Well, and it's funny how we perceive scale. I think early on in this podcast game, as I am, and for other people also on the podcast journey, very early days, you're looking at download numbers and you're like, oh my God, like what, only this, like, this is the only amount of people I can reach. But you think about, you know, if you start out on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, it's getting a hundred followers in a month or whatever is probably not unrealistic. Think about talking to a hundred people. Yes, exactly. Like, think about getting up on stage to talk to a hundred people. That's a hundred people that have said, yes, I'm interested in what this person has to say. Like that, yes. it, it's, we get into our heads about the comparison game because you see, well, this person has a million followers. They have a hundred thousand downloads. They have this, whatever. So what? Yeah. Yeah. Now there is a, there's a flip side of this. Like there's a disingenuous way to be sharing your stuff just to try to get growth and like hack the system. And like, there's, it's a very, it's self-evident to me when there's like certain people that um, are hacking it to hack it rather than to like challenge themselves intellectually or learn something or do something worthwhile. Like um, now the, the reverse, the counterpoint to that is, well, just hack growth until you actually have an audience. And then, then you can do interesting and valuable things with it. Um, so there's a little chicken and egg problem there, but um, yeah. I think that the people that try to hack growth 
will get, they, they think about that. They think they're going to do that strategy. And then when it comes time to actually put together something real, they won't be able to, and they're going to tank when your entire foundation is built on people that want to read Wikipedia articles in a new format, then the second you start trying to add interesting overlay, they, they don't follow you for your thoughts. You're not an original thinker. People yeah, don't yeah. follow Jack on Twitter <laughs> because he's going to put out Wikipedia articles about how to, you know, some weird mental framework that you can't even pronounce. He doesn't do that. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, that's true. I do think like there's a lot of look stuff out there around frameworks and mental models and ways of thinking about the world. And those are uh, like, I think generally speaking, helpful. Um, they can get a little cliche sometimes. Um, like one thing that I struggle with a lot is I feel like if I've learned something 20 years ago that like I've read, I, I saw uh, Sahil Bloom did a tweet on um, Benjamin Franklin's like virtues. He has like a list of 11 or 13 different, like um, uh, I think they're called virtues or something like that. Um, and I've read that 20 years ago. I like read his whole autobiography when I was a freshman at the Naval Academy and really enjoyed that. And um, like sharing it to me seems obvious because probably everyone else has already read it. But like, there's probably a lot of people who haven't read it and it would be nice to be valuable, interesting uh, for, for me to share it. Um, so I often, again, just like self-censor things that I, I feel like, ah, everybody's probably already seen that, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure what point I'm trying to make, but. You have put a lot of thought into how to help individuals narrow down their ideas about what they have that's valuable. You have the, the 10X writing course with Maven, which you're still teaching, right? No, not actually. Uh, I have a full-time uh, job now. Um, so I turned that off for a bit. Um, okay. I'm going to bring it back because now Maven's like gone public and it's kind of cool. And I'm re I really, those, that team is really cool. West Cow, um, Gagan Biani, those are great entrepreneurs, really fun. Um, and that platform is super powerful. I would recommend it to anyone. Um, I, I wasn't good at like closing the students, um, to, to join the course. And so I have a, I have a full-time gig um, at a small uh, tech company currently in business development. Um, I, I like plan to continue to, to be active on Twitter and, and share thoughts and learnings and stuff like that. Um, so one day could, I could see myself teaching that course, but, but to, but to your point, I really love, 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 love engaging with creative people. It's like the thing that makes me happiest. Um, and helping them express their ideas. Um, a lot of what we've talked about um, as part of this conversation um, informs that. And I think a lot of people just need to like listen to their own voice of like what is resonating with them. And it's fun to see when they can like build something or I, I worked um, with a gentleman um, who who wrote about all the things he's learned teaching organizations to become learning organizations um andrew barry and it was a great great process of helping him put that in writing 
but I think you might have had a more concrete question about it. I was going to ask, what are the steps that you take people through when when you were teaching that about how to get them from, hey, these are the things that I'm interested in to packaging them up and doing something with them, whether that be in a business way or just in a way that we can help others? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm actually... I'm going to look at my workshops here. So the bottom line is um, we did a bunch of exercises. I, I co-taught this course with James Baird. And um, what I learned from taking a course called literally how to build, I took a cohort-based course on how to build a cohort-based course, which is like uh, they needed to start a two-sided marketplace. They needed students. This is Maven. They needed students on the one hand, but they needed instructors on the other hand. So to start the flywheel going, they had to train instructors on how to do these courses so that they could get students kind of like how Uber needed drivers and riders um, in any event. So they taught us how to teach these courses. And the, the key thing is to do a series of, uh, to draw information out of people's heads through a series of exercises. So, you know, we'd send them an interactive Google doc that would ask them a bunch of questions about their own thoughts, their own creative process and force them to write, um, you know, several pages on like, describing their what what is motivating them creatively like what what do they want to learn about or what do they know about specifically that other people don't know about and how is that different from how is their point of view different from anyone else like what makes them unique um philosophically and so it's it's a it was i think we did this course i'm very proud of the the um the experience we had the very first time teaching this course because in, in my view, that very first course was like the best outcomes. People like, I think we did five weeks and I was terrified. Um, I'd never taught an online course and never taught a cohort-based course. Um, what's funny, cause like I sat across the desk from the secretary of defense, two of them, traveled the world with them, been to like 65 different countries with all of these generals and admirals and, um, you know, cabinet secretaries and was never nervous but I was super nervous teaching this course for reasons that I still don't understand. Um, and like, you know, I'd log onto the zoom and uh, I do all the prep work and I was ready. It was such a fun experience. we met like three times a week for about, I think 90 minutes with these students and did, you know, one big workshop for five straight weeks with like exercises and then a deliverable. And they would like have to every Friday, Saturday, Sunday or something like that. Um, send a work product to the entire cohort and then all of us would pick it apart and it was a blast and i think people came out of that experience with like extra motivation and an under self-understanding of what makes them unique so that was the point of it and, um, and then of course they had all the work products that we were building um, i can't recall like what we did specifically and concretely and tangibly so i'm going to fail on that on that score um, but happy to follow up maybe in some show notes with like some ideas there. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think that as I was talking with you before we started recording, I think that that is one of my goals with this podcast is inspire people to action, to do something about their ideas. Everybody's got them. Not very many people do something with them and finding exactly. unique ways to, package up the knowledge that we have and 
make a positive impact on other people in whatever way, shape, or form that looks like, I think is much more important than people realize. I agree. Um, I would say, here's a way I would put this. What I, like my, my purpose, I think what, what, what I do on Twitter, um, which is still not like a, hasn't seized like broad attention, but because I haven't been doing it prolifically enough, but I actually do want to continue to, to do this more prolifically. Um, like, I really think it's like a life mission to inspire people to be creative. Um, and I feel like success is inevitable with enough earnest effort over time, uh, enough earnest creative work over time. Like, um, and success could mean building a following. Or it could just mean like publishing something really uh, thoughtful. And like, I just think the, the world needs more thoughtful information out there. And so I like literally just want to inspire people to be creative. I tweeted like something yesterday about Albert Einstein. Uh, I think you saw it uh, potentially. Um, a kid, a really young child in, in his or her own handwriting wrote to Albert Einstein in 2017. And he, of course, had died in 1955. Um, a couple years so, late. <laughs> dear Albert, or dear Mr. Einstein, um, I hope you never stop being curious. And I just think that is such a wonderful, like, life goal is to just stay curious. And, like, the coolest 80-year-olds are, like, the most curious. Like, um, that is, like, a completely life-affirming thing is to continue to learn. Like my grandpa, uh, John Moskal, um, he's passed away now, but he was like an inveterate, his his constitution was built to learn. He was like great at the iPad when he was 83. You know, like he was, he loved to learn, loved to write, loved to communicate. And that kept him young mentally all the way to the end. You may have already just answered this question, but if I were to ask, what is something that we could learn from you that we could implement in our lives today? What would that be? Um, I, I think I think what I call this book of wisdom is really um, a way for your ideas to instead of decaying, to grow on themselves, um, to build on themselves. So like uh, my my method, my method, my my uh, what I like to do is is um, have my ideas build on themselves over time. And um, the way I have discovered to do that is by um, just adopting a practice called building a book of wisdom. And this is, again, we talked about it really at the beginning of this conversation, but it's a very simple process. Um, I'm actually going to look at the different columns of my Notion file so that I can describe it in, uh, you know, concrete detail if I can find it. Um, here we go. So to, for context, I think you might have learned this from a, a, a podcast or two um, that I've done in the past, but um, Jim Mattis is a role model to me. I admire him. Um, he's a deeply thoughtful human being. Um, not perfect, of course, because there's no, no unalloyed heroes in the world. Um, but he, he kept these voluminous binders, three ring binders, um, handwritten with uh, that he called, literally he called his book of wisdom. And uh, he he figured out this practice by hitchhiking to San Francisco when he was um, living in 
the central Washington state. And he met one of his role models, Eric Hoffer, who um, wrote a bunch of books and he's called the, the philosopher, the long, the, the longshoreman philosopher. And I think he was like a lobsterman, but deeply philosophical and a great writer published a bunch of books. One of us was called the true believer. And um, Eric told Jim Mattis, like, write down the things that are resonating with you. Uh, that sounds silly because um, it sounds obvious, but uh, he took that to heart and dramatically created these amazing, amazing testaments to everything he's consumed in his life that has resonated with him. And they, by extension, represent his own personal philosophy. If you just read through them, um, I was able to channel who he is as a human being by reading what he was quoting, simply what he was excerpting out of the world. And I understood him better from reading the things he was reading than the things he was saying, if that makes sense. Um, so uh, I always say this to people, like if you admire someone's work, read what they are reading. And that's why I thought Erasmus would be such a great idea. And I still believe it, it could be done effectively and successfully and scale. But if you had a, a mechanism to see what other people are reading, um, so you if if the platform required you to share URLs and you were not allowed to tweet unless you shared something that you were tweeting about um, and the excerpt of it, you could see into other people's brains and into their heads, what was going into their head, not what's coming out of their head. Um, so I know this is a long answer, but I'm I, hopefully it's interesting. Um, so Mattis created these. I wanted to create a digital version of this. And the simplest possible digital version of this is to have um, to have the excerpt, so the thought, um, and a heading for that thought. So like the creative process, and then an excerpt about the creative process from something you're reading, like a book about time management or something, uh, or Jim Collins' interview on creativity. And then a tag. So tagging it so you could sort and filter across all the stuff, you know, a decade later, because it's going to be a lot of thoughts, the thinker, so the source, um, and then the so what. So the so what is rewriting that excerpt in your own words, creating from it. And the only way you can prove to yourself you understand what you're excerpting is to write it in your own original language. Um, if you do that um, in, a, in a pretty, if you adopt that as a practical process in your life, then um, creating is inevitable, in my view. Will you read us the first thing that's in your book of wisdom? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I actually, it's, it's, it is on the creative process. It says 20 mile march, personal, professional, organizational. Something you do consistently that imposes a high level of discipline that accumulates to results. And this was from Jim Collins. Um, and I'll also say the last one. Um, it takes a while to scroll here. Um, Albert Hubbard, conformists die, but heretics live forever. Actually, no, it just refreshed. That's not even the last one. Um, Francis Crick, any theory that can account for all the facts is wrong because some of the facts are always wrong. I love that. It talks that's about really it, good. That's pretty good. Yeah, a good one. Um, I really like that a, idea. Here's a great one from Frobenius. Euler or Euler rather, so Euler lacked only one thing to make him a perfect genius. He failed to be incomprehensible. <laughs> I like that. Um, I love the idea of putting down the things that mean something to you. And I would imagine that maybe over time, 
some things fade out and maybe don't mean as much, but it's still interesting to keep a log and kind of like a running timeline of how your own thought process develops over time. But yeah, I just like, I like that. I call it building a book of wisdom. Um, it's kind of the way I, uh, sort of pay homage to Mattis inspiring it. Absolutely. Justin, this has been a really, really fun conversation. I have very much appreciated your time and sharing wisdom with us today. What can the listeners and myself do to be useful to you? Oh, wow. What a great question. My goodness. Uh, I would say, um, like, engage in a spirit of friendship. I would love to, um, you know, I call, I call, um, it's funny, there's a thing called generative AI that's the hot thing. Um, but I've, like, for decades, I've liked the word generative, not in a technological sense, but I love people who are generative in the sense that um, if you put something out, they're yes and type of people, not yes but, or you, you see the distinction there. Like, they they build on your ideas and make them stronger, uh, steel against steel, that sort of thing. Um, so there is a class of, there are, there are, like, trolls on Twitter, but there's the opposite of trolls. There are, like, people who are generative and, like, add something interesting to the stuff that you're putting out there and like engage comment. Um, so I, I like the idea of like developing friendships, intellectual friendships, um, and, you know, like saying interesting things that like, you know, are, um, help move your help move you forward in life. So, um, be generative, what I would say. Absolutely. Justin, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Brock. I've loved the conversation and I greatly appreciate the invitation.